Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the brilliant psychotherapist Estelle Frankel, author of Sacred Therapy and the Wisdom of Not Knowing. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. Sometimes you can't see the full path, and so you don't even venture into the unknown. You know you're unhappy, you know you need to change, but you're afraid to take the next step because you can't see the whole path. And so what I learned that night in the dark on the trail in Jerusalem, when I had left my first marriage and I was terrified of the unknown, He said, it's okay, I could see the next step. There was just enough light on the path to take one step at a time. And after I would take a step, I could see the next step. And that became a metaphor for me for venturing, you know, breaking out of a stuck place and trusting uncertainty. So says Estelle Frankel a psychotherapist and author of two wonderful books, Sacred Therapy, Jewish Spiritual Teachings on Emotional Healing and Inner Wholeness, and The Wisdom of Not Knowing, Discovering a Life of Wonder by Embracing Uncertainty. In today's conversation, we explore the dimensions of an ironically more certain state, that of not knowing or uncertainty. After all, there's very little that allows us to control what happens next. Estelle is a deep thinker about questions like this, as well as the intersection between spirituality and psychology, and what feel like essential truths to all of us, regardless of the denomination or existence of our faith. I particularly love the way that she thinks about the polarity of good and evil, and the essential components of each. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Well, I have been devouring your books. I read about, I think I read about, I think she wrote about sacred therapy. This is Susan Cain and Bittersweet. And I went through the bibliography and just started 
going on a major Estelle Frankel mm-hmm. reading spree. And now I feel like I need to go and learn all about the Kabbalah. Let's just say that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that you, you as I can't remember the words you use to describe yourself, like Jewism or the combination of Sufism, all of these other wisdom traditions in your work, I find so beautiful. Yeah, well, I am definitely a hyphenated Jew. (laughs) I don't think any one spiritual tradition has all the answers. And when you look at something from two vantage points, you see it more clearly. As does, I mean, I, so I am, my dad's Jewish and I grew up in Montana going to services with a female rabbi who flew into Montana I think once a month. And then when I realized that I would need to convert to be a Jew, I was angry. And then I read here all along a few years ago about Sarah's coming back to Judaism. And it's one of those things. I'm very interested in religion, and I count myself as a very spiritual person. But I like the cafeteria style of this feels resonant and this feels resonant. So I also personally, you know, thank you for your work because there's that part of me that feels Jewish and Mm -hmm. long ignored. And so to also have it conceptualized in a way that feels less exclusive, I guess. Right, right. It's nice. Right, yeah. My teacher, Reb Salman, espoused post-triumphalist Judaism. (laughs) So it's less tribal and more universal and a more big tent and welcoming. And nobody, certainly here in Berkeley, people don't worry about whether both or even any of your parents are Jewish. You're welcome. This was more in sacred therapy. And I think probably today we'll talk more about the wisdom of not knowing and uncertainty. But This idea that there are maybe four ways to read the Torah or that the Torah is is as much about that white fire or what's not said as it is Mm -hmm. about the words is so stunning. Yeah. Well, human beings, like sacred text, are multi-layered. And there's what a person says and what they don't say. And you look at their body language and their intonation. And it's not all in literally what a person says that the meaning emerges. And it's the same with sacred text. You read between the lines what's unsaid. And the white spaces is where the white fire of Torah flames. And the white fire is the mystery, the part that's not conceptual. You have like a story, and the story has its literal plot. But what's beneath the story? And and what are the subtle meanings of every word, every letter, said and unsaid? Mm. So as in, you know, in psychoanalysis, in-depth psychotherapy, we're also looking at not just what people say, but what they don't say. And I love in your work, and maybe this is is too obvious of a point to make, but when I think about going to services as a child, and it was a very literal experience for me, right? Trying Mm -hmm. to relate to this ancient tribe and 
and their travails. And I wasn't thinking, I mean, I was a child, but the way that you then in your work, or at least in your books, take stories like Exodus and apply them in psychotherapy was to me an opening of a door as well of this idea that these stories live and have modern application and are not just historical myths. So it, it feels like an invitation as well. These like bigger truths that are sunk into the text. Right. It's the realm of myth and not myth in the sense of whether it's true or not true. It's myth in the sense that it's a living truth hidden in the story. And before there was psychology, there was mythology and ancient myth was a way of talking about the deeper layers of experience and all the great myths are have universal eternal appeal because they're always true even mm. if they never happened <laughs> if you know what i mean so let's go to this idea too of of certainty and yeah. i guess you could call it the white fire this yeah. idea as humans that we we want to know what happens and we want to know what happened with a certainty that doesn't allow curiosity or mystery or magic. And we're in such a strange time. And obviously, you're, you wrote your book a while ago. But how do you think about that now? Well, the brain is wired to seek certainty. And neuroscientists have shown in laboratories that when you have an aha moment and you're certain of something, the pleasure centers of the brain are activated. It's enormously pleasurable to know. To not know, on the other hand, can feel like mortal danger. Our cavemen ancestors, you see this in the movie, The Crudes, the cavemen, they want to stay in the cave, live in the cave, have the same routine every day because you're safe. The minute you leave the known for the unknown, danger abounds. They're predators. So we are wired at a very primitive level to seek safety and certainty in knowing. But there's also this other thrust that growth in evolution happens when you venture into the unknown. So we live between those two poles. Some people are more adventurous, some people are more fearful, but we grow when we step out of the known into the unknown. And you mentioned the story of the Exodus. The Exodus is the classic myth of leaving the known for the unknown, leaving slavery, bondage, repetition, maybe security in the certainty of a certain limited existence to go into the desert of unknowing and seek revelation and go to the promised land where one is free to be free one must be willing to face the unknown and face uncertainty Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, 
Becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started, so it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. Do you think that in that hardwiring of us biologically that we are built that way because this knowing or this quest for knowing or journey for knowing requires so much courage in a way that that's that to get bigger we must be up against it like that's what gives it its value well i think you have these two forces these two evolutionary forces it's hardwired it's part of evolution that the safety and security of the known keeps a species alive but venturing into the unknown allows for evolution and change so you can't have too much of either. You need a balance. And I think every tribe had their adventurous spirits and their more conservative members. You know, some people are more fear-based and some people are more courageous and adventurous and they mm-hmm. make great leaders. Mm. Yeah, this sort of spiritual teacher I work with talks about her understanding of the shadow as a pacemaker or pace setter. And I know you write a lot about young, but I love that idea of like, we can only handle so much light or we can only handle so much change. And so it's as you know, and you tell that story, I think it's in sacred therapy of going through a breakup and sitting in a dark park and then the light is very far away and you're walking and you're just like, I can only go one step at a time, one step at a time. And that that's, that's how we must move, right? Right. Sometimes you can't see the full path. And so you don't even venture into the unknown. 
you know you're unhappy, you know you need to change, but you're afraid to take the next step because you can't see the whole path. And so what I learned that night in the dark on the trail in Jerusalem, when I had left my first marriage and I was terrified of the unknown, is that it's okay. I could see the next step. There was just enough light on the path to take one step at a time. And after I would take a step, I could see the next step. And that became a metaphor for me for venturing, you know, breaking out of a stuck place and trusting uncertainty. It's a beautiful story. And in that same vein, I mean, you talk a lot in both books about change, unwanted change, perhaps change that's wanted or wanted on a subconscious level, and we might not recognize it like that, but it's needed change. And you also, I thought this was so stunning, when you when you wrote about the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea, and just, in some ways, the faith that you have to keep walking even to the water's to below your nostrils in order to allow a co-creative miracle. Is that something that you still believe or have faith in? Okay. Well, maybe for listeners, it might be helpful to clarify the story you're referring to <laughs> here that when the Israelites left Egypt, it wasn't a slam dunk that they you know, went to the promised land. They spent 40 years wandering in the desert, but Seven days after the exodus, they came to a huge obstacle of the Red Sea. And at that very moment, when there was no way forward on the path, the Egyptians were also chasing them from behind. And if you saw Cecil B. DeMille's <laughs> movie on the exodus, or the Ten Commandments, whatever the movie was called, that, that's an iconic moment. It represents an iconic moment in every life transition where you can't see the path forward and you definitely can't go back to the old way. You know, sure death either way. It's like the moment before a baby comes out of the birth canal. Can't go back to the womb, I'm too big. But I don't see any way out because the cervix hasn't opened. So when we birth ourselves, we have to take the risk of stepping into the waters. And the legend is that the Israelites actually had to get into the water up to their noses before the sea split, before mm -hmm. there was divine help and a miracle happened. And sometimes that's just how it is. We go on faith, we take a leap of faith, we don't know how it's gonna work out, and then suddenly divine serendipity steps in, helpers appear on the path, and we make it across the abyss of not knowing. But we have to go all the way. Yeah, we have to have the faith to take the leap of faith. That's probably one of the most recognizable miracles in the Bible in some ways, right? And I love to, and sorry, I know I I know that it's been a minute since you since those books came out. But I also loved the story that you told. And I think it's a common, it's sort of a, a Jewish folktale. And I can't remember his name, the Hasid, 
a flood is coming. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us that story? Because it speaks so, to how miraculous yeah. a miracle has yeah. to be sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's story as I tell it is an instance of creative borrowing. I think it's told as a joke, not as a Jewish story, but in the book, I did a little bit of creative license where the Hasid is warned that there's going to be a flood and, you know, the police come and announce everybody should evacuate. And he says, ah, don't worry, God will help me. And it's raining and raining and pouring in the river. Level is rising and pretty soon the fire chief comes and says, no, it's time. Everybody needs to evacuate. We're here to help. He says, ah, don't worry. God will help me. Pretty soon, you know, the, the water is rising and rising. So he goes up to the roof and the National Guard comes and wants to finally help him evacuate and Finally, he's at the top point and a helicopter comes to rescue him. And he says, don't worry, God will help me. He drowns. He goes to heaven. He says to God, where were you? I've been devout. I've been faithful all my life. And why didn't you save me? And God says to the Hasid, first I sent the police, then the fire chief, the National Guard. I tried to help you. (laughs) That's such a beautiful... (laughs) It's a joke. It's about naive faith that we think, we misunderstand what God is. We think God is going to, you know, come reach down from heaven and lift us up with his divine arm, literally. And that isn't what God is. It's not how God operates. God operates in the world of happenstance and serendipity and all the helpers that come our way in a crisis, often in human form. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of maturing we need to do about our conception of God. Because people, like a lot of, I, I happen to be a child of Holocaust survivors. And I know a lot of Holocaust survivors who lost their faith after the Holocaust, because where was God? You know, God was dead. But God is kind of powerless. (laughs) You know, it's God acts through human agency. We are an extension of the divine arm. Mm -hmm. So we have to grow up and understand what faith is at a deeper level. And you write about this idea, which I think is very resonant of God is in everything. And so many people who are turned off by religion or God the Father or, again, these very literal ideas about divinity mm-hmm. might feel like there's, of course, my God is nature or my God is science, right? But it's not this man in robes in heaven. And God is complex. And that's what's, you know, so much of your work is about is moving people to a place Mm -hmm. of nuance of like, don't determine that something is bad luck or bad in this moment of time without any wider perspective. Life is both. Right. And God is both. Right. I like to say that I used to be orthodox, but now I'm paradox. You know, that's (laughs) the kind of... Jew I am, and and God is ultimately 
the many paradoxes of existence. There are a lot of polarities. There's good and evil, there's light and dark, there's creation and destruction, there's birth, there's death. And it, the totality of existence, that's what, that's divinity. And when we try to split God into the good, the light only, it turns people off to faith because what are you going to do with the rest of existence that's very mixed? It's a mixed bag. So we can't be integrated unless our understanding of God is also the, that totality because good can come out of evil and light. There's no greater light, says the Zohar. There's no greater light than the light that comes out of the darkness. In therapy, we talk about post-traumatic growth, not just post-traumatic stress. But sometimes the terrible things that befall us, our fate, turn out to be the very things that gift us and make us who we are. We aren't just broken. We are also extraordinarily gifted by even the traumas that we go through in life. Oh, I so believe that as well. And I loved, I don't remember exactly sort of where this this myth came from. Maybe it was Luria, but this idea that that the in this breaking or the breaking of the vessel and the light is scattered and that our job is to pick up those bits of light and rebuild the whole. I thought that was such a resonant, stunning mm -hmm. idea of wholeness. Yeah, well, that's the central myth of Kabbalah, that the world came into being and perennially comes into being through the threefold process of withdrawal, shattering, and repair, Tsimtsum, Shvira, and Tikkun. And so before there could be a world the before the Big Bang, the Ein Sof, the infinite, boundless oneness that was willing creation, first had to vacate the light, had to make a womb of darkness, an empty space, a void that would be the womb within which the worlds would come into being. And with a single ray of light, the, the, the void was penetrated. And simultaneously, the vessels created the form that were created to receive and house the light, they shattered. In other words, the infinite couldn't be contained by anything finite without shattering, without breaking apart and that's multiplicity it's how the oneness makes its way into existence through a process of shattering and our job or the purpose of existence is tikkun to reassemble the broken pieces to make a mosaic so that the multiplicity all the parts all of the separate seemingly separate entities are reassembled 
into a unified whole where we see the oneness of God, even in the brokenness. Hmm. So you say, you look at the world, the 10,000 things, all the different people, we all appear to be in separate bodies, but we are really all part of a single unified whole. And to remember that oneness when you're entering the world of separation is to be a Kabbalist. <laughs> and every place you go, you're gathering up sparks of light from the broken places that you mend. And each of us has a broken place in us. Each of us is a little bit of a chip off the divine block. We're like broken pieces of a single mosaic that make up God's face. This is how the Ishbenzer Rebbe talks about it, that why are there so many people on the planet? Because God is infinite and we're each a little piece of God's face. And if any one of us was missing, the face would not be complete. Mm. So beautiful. And then is can can you then extend that to this metaphor of how each of us, maybe we emerge already broken, but then we break more, you know, we're shattered a little bit more by life and loss and hard things, mm -hmm. but then that mm -hmm. broadens our capacity for light? Well, I think each time we experience a shattering, it's an ending, and every ending is an opportunity for a new beginning. So the, the Tsimsum Shvira Tikkun process is going on throughout our lives. A door closes, a new door opens. I like to point out just even historically, the same year that the Jewish people were expelled from Spain during the Spanish Inquisition and was 1492. It's the same year that Columbus sailed to the New World. So a door was closing on a civilization. Jews had been living in Spain for some 1,200 years before that, and they were an integral part of Spanish society so when that shattering happened, the new world opened up. And think about, you know, you know, just how the world evolved after that. Not, not entirely in good ways, but it was change. It was evolution, expansion. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper 
that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your ChiliPad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Why, in your opinion, why are Jews, why so persecuted? I know that's a big question. (laughs) Well, I think that Jews were historically persecuted because they were outsiders. And the fear of the other, the fear of different is part of that same human tendency to want certainty, Mm -hmm. to not want others, to, to not want difference. And Jews have been revolutionaries and change makers and troublemakers. If you look at every revolutionary movement, Jews have often been at the forefront. They're change makers. Mm-hmm. So not everybody wants change. <laughs> Nobody wants change. Even monotheism, like from its inception, Judaism was a rebellion against polytheism. So it was a revolutionary idea and nobody wanted change. Yeah. Just so interesting because I, you know, I feel like in our paucity of cultural understanding, I don't know that people realize, well, one, Jesus was a, a Jew, Raboni, but that Abraham, the patriarch, was the father of obviously Judaism, Christianity, and also Islam. And so it's interesting that Jews are other when they're also at the beginning of it of it all, of, of you know, mm-hmm. two of obviously the most primary religions. Well, there's the other and there's the almost the same, but different. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> oh. And so that can you, be more threatening. You're yeah. almost the same, but not quite. That can be more threatening than somebody who's completely other. And I think when Christianity wanted to differentiate itself in the, in the earliest century, in the first century when Jesus lived, Christians, the early Christians were Jews. They were a sect of Judaism. But then later on, the Later Christians wanted to differentiate, and so the hatred was a way to push away and malign the group they were leaving. What, in terms of Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism, is there an ultimate goal? Maybe that's a silly question, but in that creation of the, the face or the mosaic of God, what are we, are we working towards something? Well, the messianic ideal is what we're working toward. 
and Christianity proclaimed that the Messiah came in the form of Jesus and that Jesus will return. And the whole difference with Judaism is we say that, well, the Messiah hasn't yet come, and that's why the world is so messed up. But when the Messiah comes, or when the Messianic era arrives, that as Isaiah, the prophet said, the lion will lie down with the lamb, that mm. there would be peace between these opposites. So I think mm. the hallmark of what the messianic era is, is that we would get along. We would all see ourselves as connected rather than competing and killing each other's, killing each other off. There's, I don't know if you've read Bart Ehrman's work, but a lot of, you know, the way that the New Testament obviously came to be read or codified so that Jesus would be, and I don't know that Jesus ever said, like, I'm the Messiah. A lot of things were changed to make it a more durable. I mean, I love Jesus. I think his teachings are quite incredible. I don't like the way that he's maybe taken out of context. But it's interesting to think about, and again, that's my quest for certainty, mm -hmm. right? To want to understand what this mm -hmm. whole thing is about. <laughs> yeah, well, in the last several years, a number of books have come out about Jesus the Jew and who he actually was and how Jewish his teachings were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like almost literally out of our scriptures, but after his death, Christianity differentiated, changed the Sabbath to a different day. The Last Supper was Passover. It was the Passover Seder. Yep. So I think intelligent Christian scholars are really understanding the, the Jewishness of Jesus but how he re-emphasized the love element of Judaism rather than the law, the adherence to the strictures of Jewish law. And I, I think Hasidism, which was an 18th century Jewish revival movement, a spiritual revival movement, picked up the thread that Jesus stitched. And Hasidism re-emphasized the joy and love element of Judaism, because once again, it had been lost under the many centuries of oppression. And then, of course, you know, there are the Gnostic Gospels, which have been recovered, and who knows what other Gospels have not been recovered, but ones that were deemed heretical. But I love Mary Magdalene, too, and, you know, and, and her gospel is so powerful in it because essentially the teaching is there is no exterior authority. There's no need for a church. Don't listen to a lawmaker over there. Mm. Everything that you need is inside. And this is an internal mm. knowing process, which I think is so beautiful and so stunning and revolutionary. And it speaks to, well, I think so much of your work or what I'm interested in my life too, which is trying to figure out what's true for me or what's in there that's mm -hmm. maybe not so literal mm -hmm. or not so law-like or that nuance. 
Yeah. Well, I think when we collaborate theologically and we dialogue between faith traditions, we find a lot of commonality. I was just in southern Italy where the cult of the Virgin Mary is Mm -hmm. very strong. And in every church, there are the central statue is Mary, not Jesus. Jesus is off to the side, maybe, or a baby. The energy of the teachings of Mary, her divine compassion, are very similar to the teachings about the Shekhinah, the divine presence in Judaism. And the Shekhinah is the divine mother. She's the feminine side of God, the loving side, the compassionate side. So when you when you go deeper into these different traditions, you find the same mythic elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I had the same feeling. And you see, it's interesting, like you see even Notre Dame, right? Like you see this, the the feminine will not be repressed or suppressed despite current political climates. But that desire for that feminine, and again, not equated with like being female, but that feminine version of love is so essential and needed. So let's talk about where we are in this moment of time. What's your perspective? On the world? Yeah. (laughs) Well, we're in a crisis. And what the Chinese say that the word for crisis is also trans- the same word as transformation, that crisis is a time when we need to transform. And if we don't, you know, we'll be a, a, a irrelevant species. So, you know, the climate disasters ought to be accelerating our thrust toward renewable energy and saving the planet. So I think both things are going on. There's a lot of progress going on and a thrust toward evolving and transforming. And at the same time, we're seeing regression back to warfare and a kind of primitive survive need to survive by destroying others. So Either we're going to come together and collaborate and save the planet or save our species, at least, or we're going to, you know, be wiped out. I think that's what's happening. Yeah. I'm trying to stay hopeful because it's important to be hopeful and lean into change, but we have to change as a species. No, I agree with you. I I am hopeful in part because I see the resistance to evolution or progress, the shadow side of it is in some ways helpful by destroying or showing the ina- the inadequacy of so many of our structures. Mm-hmm. Even when you think of Roe v. Wade and it, the mm-hmm. ruling on privacy, it's like, oh no, okay, that's shatterable. Then like we will ride, we, that it'll push mm-hmm. us, I think, as horrible and, and shaky as this feels to to create a different structure, a stronger structure, one that like is mm. yet a little bit more clarified or real or foundational. 
Yeah, well, that the best possible outcome we saw in Kansas this week, right? People rising up and saying no to regressive forces. But that has to happen across the board. We have to take the darkness that has descended upon our country and we have to use it to overpower it with light and love. And And individual action. You know, again, it goes to like our individual autonomy and the role that we each must play rather than just relying on these structures to protect us or always be moving forward. Like it feels like the end of an era of complacency to me, at least. Yeah. But do you know, I don't even know if I believe in the fairy tale messianic era anymore. I I think my greatest hope (laughs) is that the good will be always a little greater than the evil and Mm. that the light will always be a little greater than the darkness that will tip the scale. And, you know, the Hasidic masters say, just do the next good deed. I know I sometimes feel powerless with the amount of darkness in the world, but each day if I can do a good deed, I'm tipping the scale toward the light, you know, sign one more petition, make one more donation. I've never (laughs) made so many political donations in my life as I have in the last five years, six years, whatever. I know. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I love the myth of messianic redemption because it's a hopeful beacon of light that keeps us moving toward the good but it's possible that you know there's always this balance of good and evil creation destruction but we just have to keep it a little more we have to use the moments of darkness to bring back the light I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. 
Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. And can you talk a little bit more about evil and this idea? I loved when you were talking about it might be too complex, but the union of that's implied in Genesis of good and evil, that it's all contained, mm. as you said, within divinity, mm. and that this isn't about some exterior, again, some exterior enemy. This is all mm. one stew. Well, I like the one stew, like when you cook a stew, there's a lot of ingredients. And some of the ingredients, if you just ate that ingredient, it might not be so tasty. Like, let's say you throw a chili pepper into your (laughs) stew. That's kind of what, you know, evil, if it's isolated all by itself, it can really burn you. But when you put it in the stew, when you work with many ingredients in life, something even more delicious happens. So evil is evil when it's separated from the whole. And when we use the defense mechanism known as splitting, where we try to separate good and evil into distinct domains, and we don't see the blurring of boundaries, we don't see the overlap, we don't see the humanity of our enemy, then that isolating of evil can create a lot of trouble in the world. Mm -hmm. So by seeing the humanity of our enemy, we can maybe work with them and bring them back from the brink of total destruction. What goes on with wars is we enemize our enemies. (laughs) We, you know, we other to the degree that we think we can destroy them without hurting ourselves. Mm. We have to think, we have to be thinking about our interconnected web of life and make our enemies feel safe so they don't threaten us or we have to work with. Yeah. Well, and otherizing is to dehumanize, right? Like we deny the complexity of other people when we assume that they are only one thing. And it's Um, usually projection. We're not owning our own dark side. What did we do also to provoke them to become Taliban or Putin or whatever? Like we have to also work with our own darkness, our own shadow, and not just project it onto our enemies. So we are part of the problem too. And it's it's disheartening to face the fact that we're not the good guys and that the good guys and the bad guys are the same guys. And that's a line out of a play I once saw. I didn't make it up. I don't remember what the play was called. We are the good guys, but we're also the bad guys. Yeah. 
I was once, this is a funny story, I was once with my three-year-old son years ago. We were going to a store called The Good Guys. It was like an electronics store. And he was in the back seat. I said, here we are, we're at The Good Guys. Come on, let's go. He said, ah, why do we always have to go to The Good Guys? Why can't we go to The Bad Guys? <laughs> and that said, that said it all. It was profound. It's Star Wars, right? That's Star Wars for you. Yeah. So to, to, to conclude, there's this Alan Watts quote about faith versus belief that I think is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that belief clings, whereas faith lets go. And again, mm -hmm. it goes to the, you know this theme of certainty that so many mm -hmm. of us have. And so many times I feel like people's beliefs become certain. If I do right. this, then I get that. Or jo God is just mm. and merciful always. Can you talk a little bit about your mm. conception of faith? Yeah, faith for me is in the not knowing, not understanding. It's beyond comprehension. It's being in relation to the mystery with a humble awareness that God is beyond my comprehension. Belief, as you said, is about thinking you know. It's reducing, it's shrinking. Honey, I shrunk God. I made God into an idol. I have my little golden calf I can worship, and I'm certain I get up in the morning. I practice my beliefs. And everyone who doesn't do what I do, they're wrong. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about idolatry? Because I think we, we think of it culturally as the golden calf, right? But you write about it as... as a much more expansive idea. I mean, you can idolize text. You can idolize anything, right? Right, right. You can turn faith into idolatry. Like you can have a living experience of awakening and beauty and truth and divinity. But the next day, you can enshrine it and try to make it permanent and cling to it. And then you've made it into an idol. You know, it's it's trying to keep alive something that was a memory by enshrining it rather than letting it be a living mystery that you were graced to experience. And maybe you'll get to experience it again, but only if you live humbly in the presence of the mystery. Mm. And the mystery is the place where you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Zen... Koan, not knowing is most intimate. If you want to get close to the truth, you have to be that pilgrim who doesn't know, doesn't know where he's going even, doesn't know what the purpose is, because each moment is revealing itself moment by moment. Each moment is fresh, like mana. You can't take the mana from heaven and store it for tomorrow because it goes putrid. So yesterday's awakening is yesterday's awakening. And today, you know, open yourself and see what is revealed. Mm, beautiful. Mm. And it's it speaks to that, you know, that paradox that's maybe central to Judaism, which is that it was the first faith it was the first written down, right, or ever consecrated or or turned into something that 
can be read or it's literal. And yet it's argued over, right? Like it's an evolve, a continually evolving religion and the, the, te- the Torah mm-hmm. doesn't change, but that rabbis are arguing its points, like it's an act of faith. Well, I think that, that when religions continue to evolve and change and be reinterpreted, then it's a living faith. If you try to freeze frame it in the 18th century and you're living in 21st century, it, you know, it's no longer a living religion, it's idolatry. Mm. So like that. But I think the brilliance of Moses was that he shattered those first tablets. You know, here's the truth of our revelation God gave us. Okay, I'm going to shatter it. It's broken. Go pick up the broken pieces. You know? Yeah. You think you know? Shatter it. Shatter your knowing. Try and know it again. And then that, that as you write, that those scattered pieces were carried in the ark with mm-hmm. the new tablets, right? Like that's part yeah. of the faith. That's a different metaphor too. Okay. But yes, the whole, <laughs> the broken, they coexist side by side. Things are broken, but they're also whole. Mm-hmm. You might be broken, you might feel shattered, but you're also whole. And they mm-hmm. coexist side by side. But I was using that broken tablet story on a in a different way to think about it as you have a revelation, you bring it down from heaven, don't get too attached. In The Wisdom of Not Knowing, Estelle talks about this idea, this Jewish legend that refers to a mythic, mystical white space, as she writes, known as the white fire of Torah in contrast to the black fire of Torah that is comprised of the written words, stories, and commandments we are most familiar with, the white fire is wordless and silent, existing in a timeless realm. As a symbol, the white fire points toward that which cannot be known or spoken, the truth, before we attempt to limit it by putting it into words and thoughts. And though we cannot wrap our minds around it, we can intuitively grasp it in silence, in the pause between breaths, and in the gap between thoughts. Oh, I love that idea. It's so stunning. The space between the moments before something has completely coalesced into a tidy little packet. That is life. And that is where we live. And in her book, too, she printed a Mary Oliver poem that I love. I can't stop repeating it. It is, Someone I once loved gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.